Welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. What if inhaling a certain hormone could make autistic children more social? And what if novel imaging techniques could reveal aspects of the brain that give us a deeper glimpse into this developmental disorder? Well, that's just the kind of novel research some leading scientists presented at the Academy earlier this year. This April, the Academy hosted a symposium on autism spectrum disorders, which include the range of associated conditions, like Asperger's syndrome and childhood disintegrative disorder. The symposium, titled From Genes to Targets to Treatments, brought together leaders from different fields to give an inside view on the breakthrough research in autism today. In this week's Science in the City podcast, you'll hear from two of those experts. Dr. Timothy Roberts, who studies brain connectivity and how delayed auditory responses may be markers of autism. And Dr. Eric Hollander, who works with oxytocin, also known as the love hormone, as an experimental therapy. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Autism Speaks. Autism is perhaps best defined as autism. It's a, a terribly heterogeneous developmental disorder, which has been recognized for 50 years or more, and is characterized by a triad of behavioral symptoms, including social impairments, impairments in language and communication, and repetitive or stereotypical behaviors. That's Dr. Tim Roberts. He's professor of radiology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He also runs the Lurie Family Foundation's MEG Imaging Center. I asked him to ease us into his research by first telling us exactly what autism, or autisms as he put it, is. What is known about the causes of autism is it has a complex basis. The fact that we see heritability, that is associations between twins and between family members, suggests that there is certainly a genetic basis to autism. Above and beyond the genetic basis, there maybe unlikely is uh, an environmental contribution, but unfortunately, compared with some other disorders, there's certainly not a single gene that is responsible for autism. There may be many, many genes that are interacting in a rather complicated way to convey the behavioral symptoms. Robert's own research focuses on auditory processing in the autistic brain, which he studies using something called magnetoencephalography. It's quite a mouthful, so we'll just say MEG for the rest of the discussion. MEG is a machine that allows scientists to record brain waves using the very small magnetic fields that come from brain activity. So brain activity is electrical, just like a current in a wire or a power line. That's what happens in our neurons or our nerve cells in our brain. And it generates a tiny magnetic field, which we capture with a helmet, which is the MEG machine, containing many hundreds of very sensitive magnetic field detectors. What this really means is that scientists like Roberts are able to track brain activity precisely where it's happening in the brain in real time, at a sub-second scale. So we're able to watch um, brain activity more like a movie than in terms of just a, a spatial map. In his auditory response studies, MEG imaging allows Roberts to look at the distinct timing of neural responses to a sound, say, a beep. And what Roberts' team found is that whilst those responses typically occur a fraction of a second after the stimulus in children with typical development, they occur a fraction later in the children with autism. 
very small split-second delay in the responses of the children with autism to hearing simple sounds. Now, you may be thinking, what difference could a fraction of a second make? But when you think about conversations happening in real time, there's a constant flow of information being taken in. But if every sound elicits a slightly delayed response, even by a split second, it would eventually become impossible to keep up. More than likely, you'd stop paying attention at all. It's like sitting through a lecture that goes way over our heads for most of us. By the time you catch up to one concept, the speaker's already moved on to the next. Now, a big chunk of the population experiences some sort of auditory processing delay. But where this delay information becomes really useful, according to Roberts, is when you can aggregate the different kinds of auditory processing delays found in people with autism. So we have delays for simple sounds, and there are delays recognizing changes in sounds. Perhaps we might change a syllable from ah to ooh, and that happens, of course, in many words, that the syllable changes. And there are different responses which are differently delayed. And when such measures are taken together... We could start subtyping. So not only can we make the distinction between children with autism and children with typical development, but we can also use these combination classifiers, if you like, to identify children according to their degree of language impairment, which is separately determined clinically. So we are able to not just say something about diagnosis, but also something about symptom severity. As Robert said earlier, the thing about autism is that it's a very complex disorder. No two children are alike. And this variability makes it difficult to come up with a treatment that works effectively for all children. But the insights gained through this MEG imaging of auditory responses in the brain could be used to identify and stratify children with autism according to how much of a delay they exhibit and what type of delay it is. And that would allow for more targeted treatments. We may even see this technique being used to guide the clinical trials to, for example, select or match the appropriate patients to the appropriate drug and then to monitor the performance of that drug. So I think it can direct the drug development search. I think once those drugs have been developed, it might be able to be used to monitor quantitatively and objectively improvement as a result of the drug treatment. So we may see it as a response measure telling us whether the drug is working on an individual basis. That being said, MEG imaging is still in the research stage. MEG machines are not widely available. In fact, there are perhaps only about 100 of them worldwide in hospital and academic centers presently. This is an emerging technology, and it has high costs associated with it at this point. But the future is certainly open for this new technology. I think that the future will go off in several different directions. One of the directions we're very excited about is the development of dedicated MEG machines for smaller and smaller heads, which might make these measures accessible in uh, very much younger children, perhaps even before they have received a diagnosis of autism. Who could it then act as a diagnosing tool itself? Well, now we're speculating about the future, but I certainly Mm -hmm. uh, believe that and hope so. So, emerging technologies provide new insights into the autism spectrum that we didn't have before. But our second hot topic in autism research takes us in a different direction. You may have heard of oxytocin. It's the so-called love hormone, and it's been studied as a treatment for autism for a few years now. Dr. Eric Hollander, director of the Autism and Obsessive Compulsive Spectrums program at Montefiore Medical Center at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, has been involved in oxytocin research for some time. Well, so we can administer oxytocin to individuals with autism, 
there have been a uh, series of studies done by our group and others as well. It can be given through an intravenous infusion, or it can be given by uh, inhalation, by sniffing it. And what's been found is that we can help autistic individuals to better be able to recognize emotions so that they're more likely to accurately identify emotions, for example, in spoken language, or they're better able to accurately identify emotions in facial expressions, or, for example, by looking at the eyes. Hollinger says that oxytocin also seems to help people with autism restrict compulsive and repetitive behaviors. But to understand why oxytocin helps improve social and communicative behaviors in people with autism, it's best to go back to the beginning. What exactly is oxytocin, and what does it do? Well, oxytocin is a, is a large peptide. It's made out of uh, nine different amino acids. And it turns out that there are two different oxytocin systems. One system is in the brain. It releases oxytocin and stimulates the brain's own oxytocin receptors. It turns out that when oxytocin is made in the hypothalamus, it can also be secreted into different regions of the brain, like, for example, the nucleus accumbens, which is a reward center of the brain. And when oxytocin is released and stimulates oxytocin receptors in the nucleus accumbens, that plays an important role in reinforcement of social activities. So it plays an important role, for example, in pair bonding or the development of a strong bond of trust or love, you know, hence the name, the love hormone. But then there's the second oxytocin system, the peripheral one. It's involved in getting the peptide into the bloodstream and delivering it to different organs, like the uterus or the breast, for example. Oxytocin plays a major role in childbirth and mother-to-child bonding thereafter. That's right. So one very important aspect of breastfeeding is that that's a time that's very important in facilitating the bonding between the mother and the infant. So often the mother and the infant start to connect and develop a very strong maternal-infant bond, and that is facilitated through the release of oxytocin. Oxytocin also plays a role in mating. For one, there's a big release of the hormone during sex. But perhaps most importantly for our purposes, oxytocin is also involved in everyday social interactions. It plays a role in laying down new social memories. So when we uh, recognize other individuals, one of the ways that we remember those individuals, we recognize their faces or we try to remember their names, is partly through the stimulation of oxytocin receptors in the brain associated with laying down new social memories that play a role in social recognition. So that when we uh, see these individuals again, you know, we will sort of recognize them and those social memories are facilitated by the release of oxytocin. So perhaps it's no wonder that a little extra oxytocin makes us a little extra social autistic or not. What's fascinating is that both in animals or in typically developing adults or in children or adults with autism, across the board it seems to improve sociability or social cognition and to improve repetitive behaviors. In individuals with autism, however, the oxytocin system may not be functioning properly, 
which makes it harder to form social bonds and lay down social memories. Well, there have been some studies that have suggested that in subgroups of individuals who have autism, particularly those who are more aloof and socially withdrawn, that they may have lower plasma or blood levels of oxytocin and that during normal development, they may not have the normal uh, increase in the blood levels of oxytocin. Mm-hmm. We also know that when patients with autism sniff or inhale oxytocin, you know, their blood levels start to move in the direction of healthy individuals. This sounds like a pretty good deal then. Administer some oxytocin, a drug that is, after all, secreted naturally in each of us, and voila, improved sociability in autistic patients and others with impaired social functioning. But this therapy is still in the experimental stage. And since not much is known about oxytocin's longer-term effects, some concerns have been raised over issues like tachyphylaxis, the decreased response to a drug after long-term use, or the possibility of dependency and a further lessening of the patient's own oxytocin production capacity. That's not known, but one of the things that I would say is that it turns out that individuals are having a rapidly increasing and decreasing oxytocin levels throughout the course of the day, tied in with the various social activities that they're involved in. But Hollander concedes that there are still more large-scale studies needed before oxytocin is ready to come out to the market for general use. But the takeaway message is a hopeful one. Well, I think that this is a very exciting area because it suggests that the brain itself is not fixed and that we can enhance some of these circuits and systems at different stages associated with improvement in some of the core symptoms of autistic disorder. And eventually, he sees oxytocin playing a supporting role in already established therapeutic interventions. So a combination of behavioral interventions with pharmacologic interventions might ultimately be the most helpful. Teach individuals the skills and then help them so they have more salience or more reward from social interactions or that they experience less threat and anxiety in social interactions. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Autism Speaks and the New York Academy of Sciences. Science in the City is a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. Find us online at www.scienceandthecity.org. As always, we'd love to hear from you, so shoot us an email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Catch us next time, and goodbye till then.